so yeah, we uh, we're scumbags. Welcome to the Dead Format. My name is Ian McEwen, and I'm joined tonight by the Jerry T to my Brian Gottlieb, my co-host Tom Smiley, and we're back to talk about what I thought was one of the best weekends for Legacy in a long time. I'm so happy that I get to be Jerry T. Well, bro, you've earned it. I mean, come on, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was a great week for Legacy. I had a blast playing this weekend. I got really, really salty, and I can't wait to talk about it. But Legacy is back, and people are excited. The event was a very, very fun time to see a lot of people and get to see what this new format is going to be like. Yeah, I mean, Legacy events are great, and Star City events are great. You know, we don't sing their praises enough as a community, I don't think. A lot of people complain about, oh, the challenges have, uh, are they called challenges? No, classics have prize wall tickets or whatever. You know, they don't have enough legacy, or I, I like team opens, or I don't like team opens. They don't go to the West Coast anymore. Honestly, just, you know, shut the fuck up. Star City's amazing. I love Star City. They, they do an excellent job, and, you know, if there's one thing that I've learned from being around the game as much as I have, it's people will complain about anything. Magic players, especially. Speaking of which, I literally just saw, as you were calling me, Someone posted on Facebook the WPN update to the alcohol policy. Have you seen this? I have. That was the, one of the first things that popped into my newsfeed today, and I'm excited about it. I actually, I've been sort of functioning along with those rules for for a few events, and it's um, <laughs> it's it's a great time to go to uh, the bar between rounds to have a beer and then go back to the event center. I definitely did that on Saturday. Yeah, so we have a couple places in Boston. Like, there's this bar I believe it's called the Good Life. I've only been there once for this this uh, event, but I think it's Tuesday nights. They do like draft. They have games and Magic the Gathering, like video games and board games. And exactly. Yeah. You just show up and drink. And I I've been there for one of those nights as well. It's it's kind of a hike for me to get into Boston to do that, especially with a kid. But I'm excited to see more things like that. We, yeah, um, there's drafts and drafts of Pandemonium, too. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's cool that that's sanctioned, but honestly, this is the kind of thing that sounds cool, I think. But I'm a little bit, I don't know, apprehensive, I guess, about overall. Because, you know, you go to play Magic, this is like a sanctioned event. You're not controlling who's going to be there. And I'm just worried about, like, some Magic players turned up to an 11, you know what I mean? Yeah, and and I'm sure that that will definitely happen. I've been lucky enough to have a draft at a place in Salem called BitBar, where it's a old-school arcade slash bar, and we had a weekly draft going there, uh, and it was always a great time. I've also played in a competitive event, one of the old PTQs, that was held in a hotel in Vermont, and the restaurant in the hotel was open for lunch and was serving beers. And there was an hour and a half break for lunch in the middle of the PTQ. And I came back to the tournament to sit down across from an absolutely hammered opponent 
and it was probably <laughs> one of the one of the most fun games that I've ever played. That's convenient. So I've been yeah. out, I've been out to Seattle a couple times now to the Mox Boarding House. And that's super cool how they do that. Like, it's it's sort of quarantined off. Like, there's a restaurant. It, not, like, literally quarantined. You can go back and forth. But uh, that was really cool. And I guess they sort of got grandfathered in, or they have a pass because of their proximity to Watsi. Well, I guess we'll see how this turns out, right? Yeah, that's one of the places where I definitely want to make it out to. I got a chance to actually go to the Watsi headquarters to um, meet up with some friends while I was on my honeymoon a few years ago. And that was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but I, I didn't hit any of those other local places in the Seattle area that I've heard a lot of good things about. Uh, so sweet, man. We had a blast out there this year, and I had a blast out there the previous year just chilling with their locals and playing in their legacy like weeklies and preservation series. It's awesome. Yeah, I've heard that that area is the only really comparable area for legacy to what we have it absolutely with. rivals boston yeah awesome all right so you want to uh you want to dive into this event i think we should just lead off with your event because you need to get this off your chest this is so brutal and I, I, there's just so much that i want to say about one particular game that has been just sort of brewing in my head where every single thing that happened just leads me to believe that my opponent was such a savage cheater and i made such a mistake by letting it go i'm gonna save that match for last because i don't want to go in order so people can figure out who this person is i just want to make a disclaimer saying that there is definitely a chance definitely a chance that this person did not cheat but Every single thing that happened leads me to believe that they did. And it's really all on whether or not they did something that I am guessing that they did and how they set it up. So I'll talk about that last. Okay, yeah, that's pretty heavy, man. Um, yeah. Oh, you haven't told me this story, just so everybody knows. You yeah. specifically did not tell me this story so that you could save it for the podcast. I told the story twice. Like my after I stormed away from the table, my team was like, "Like, what exactly happened?" And I told the story then, and I told it to one more group of my friends that came over when they saw that I was visibly upset. And then after that, I was like, "I can't tell the story all day. It's just going to get me too worked up." This will be the uh, third time that I've told the story, and I can't wait for people to hear it. But it's it's savage. But there have been some passive aggressive Facebook posts on the Leaving a Legacy forum, correct? Okay, I just needed to do some research. <laughs> I just needed I just needed to know what other people do in situations that involve cracking a fetch land all right so anyway let's let's talk about let's talk about my event i'm going to do these rounds out of order so it's just harder for somebody to figure out what's going on yeah. all right i had a few well first of all i played infect and i made a few changes to the list that i was working with i wanted to have a basic island i knew that having a resilient mana base was something that was going to be important and in a lot of the tight matches i won being able to get basic forest, basic island was huge and allowed me to win. Everything else was sort of stuck, and I ended up playing eight rounds of magic for a reason that I'll talk about after. And there are a few sort of really easy buys that I have. When you play Infect, going into it, I knew that Rug Delver and Miracles were going to be challenging but winnable. Grixis matchups were bad. And a few other matchups were basically buys. And I had a few of those. So 
in one round, I played against elves, and uh, I killed them on turn two and then turn three. The only interesting thing that happened was I force of will the natural order, otherwise they just died. I don't know how that deck really interacts with with how infect works. They're not running any removal, and their their game plan is a little bit slower than yours. I also played against Burn, and even though Burn has a ton of removal, if they're pointing their burn spells at your creatures, they're not killing you. And your pump spells are natural counters to their burn spells. There was a turn, turn three win in game one. And then in game two, I had a turn two spell skite that I played off of a forest and an ink moth nexus, which allowed me to kill them on turn three with um, double pump spell and a spell skite backup. So those were sort of the matches where the deck sort of won. The matchups were horrible for my opponents, and and there wasn't really much skill involved in playing those games. There was another match that I played against our buddy Zach Turgeon on Mono Red Stompy, which was the opposite. The Mono Red Moon matchup is terrible for Infect. So bad. They have so many cards that can just completely shut down our game plan, whether it be Chalice, which is annoying, to Blood Moon, to things like Pia and Kieran Nalar, which is just awful. Awful to try to fight through. So, Zach won the die roll and let off on the play in game one. I mulliganed to four because I knew that there were specific things that I needed to have to win in the matchup. He chaliced on turn one. I was able to play a Blighted Agent, but I wasn't able to draw enough pump to kill him through the Rabble Masters that came after. So I lost game one. Game two, I was on the play, and I actually won through a turn one chalice, turn two goblin rabble master, turn three blood moon, turn four Pia and Karen Nalar. So I had enough pump spells to actually be able to get through two Pia and Karen activations getting thrown at my creature. That was a game where I didn't think I had any business winning, but it, the hand just came together. And in game three, I got turn one chalice, turn two mooned, and I died. So those three were really sort of non-matches. And I knew coming in that those matches were sort of going to go that way. I had three really good matches where the play was back and forth. Rug Delver, Sneak and Show, and Miracles which all went three games, but I won all three of those matchups. The Sneak and Show game three, I was able to win through a resolved Grizzlebrand, where they weren't able to find enough Force of Wills to stop me on the following turn. The Rug Delver game, I was able to find my basics fairly early and navigate a longer game, which felt really good. And the Miracles games, game one was over really quickly, and game two and three were slogs, that um that I ended up getting it through. So, of those matches that I've played, I lost one of them, won five of them, and there are two more, two more that we're going to talk about, and both of those are against Grixis. I knew coming in that Grixis was going to be a bad matchup, but these are two fairly different Grixis decks. One of them was Grixis Tazeret, the Ensnaring Bridge Chalice Grixis deck, where I won game one, Lost game two to an early chalice and Gigapur Aethergrid, 
which is a nightmare card to deal with. Brutal. Yeah. And in game three, I had my opponent at nine. In fact, when he was able to plus Tezzeret after drawing a land to be able to play bridge. So he had no cards in hand. He had an ensnaring bridge. He's at nine poison. I have two ink moss and a blighted agent. And I needed to draw any three of my sideboard artifact removal spells. So I needed Dissenter's Deliverance, a Meridian Corruptor, or a Crossing Grip. And there were 12 draw steps that I had to hit it. And I bricked. So Tag is technically I'm a favorite to win that. But my cantrips were shut off because of their chalice. I wasn't able to draw the outs that I needed, and I just eventually died to the Tezzeret. Yep. All right. So five and two out of those games, and then we're going to get in. We're going to get into the to the salt. So I played against Grixis Delver, and not not only is this Grixis Delver a bad matchup, this Grixis Delver deck had main deck Grim Lavamancer and Baleful Strix. Brutal. So. My opponent's on the play, plays a turn one Lava Mancer, and I just sort of look at it, and I'm like, this is my life right now, this is happening. And I end up playing out a few lands, and I have an Ink Moth Nexus. My opponent develops his board, ends up getting into an Angler, and I have one more turn to win. I brainstorm on his end step, and I set up a hand that has Invigorate, Become Immense, with enough fuel in the graveyard, Force of Will, and Fluster Storm. Pretty good four cards. Yep. My opponent has two mana untapped, two fetch lands in the Lava Mancer, and he had cards in hand. All right. So it's important to know that in this game, when my opponent cracked his first fetch land, he failed to present his deck. The way that he had it set up, he had a, he had his deck sort of back on the right-hand corner of his playmat, away across the table from me. He also had his deck box lengthwise between our playmats, sort of acting as like a little barrier that was between my library and his. So for me to reach across, I would have had to get up from my chair to reach across to cut his deck. Interesting. Now, my first mistake in that game was not calling the judge when that first happened. He cracked a fetch land in my end step, activated Lava Mancer, waited a little bit, and then drew his card. And I called him on it after he drew his card, but I didn't call a judge. So, number one mistake for me. All right. And at that point, alarm bells aren't really going off. I could see that happening, but I thought that it was weird that this opponent didn't present their deck. After having a conversation at the beginning of the game, like, do you play a lot of Legacy? He said, yes. Like, very sternly, like, oh, you don't know who I am? And I was like, hmm, okay. So he plays a lot of Legacy, but he didn't present his deck. And that, that should have just 100% sent off warning shots, but it didn't. So we get down to this last turn, and th- these are the events that happened. And I'm going to take the facts of what happened and say, all right, this is a fact, this is a fact, this is a fact. And then when I get into my speculation about what I think my opponent did... I'm going to say it's speculation, because there is definitely a chance that my opponent didn't cheat. But I think from every possible action that they took, it signals that they were a scumbag, just absolute dirtbag cheater. So I have three lands in play. I have an Ink Moth, 
and two tropical islands. My opponent has two dual lands untapped and two fetch lands. So, I animate my Moth Nexus, and I attack. Since my opponent has no poison, he doesn't have to do anything, I pump my Ink Moth Nexus with Invigorate. My opponent pauses for a second and tries to Spell Pierce. All right, so he has one card left in his hand, and I Force of Will removing Flusterstorm. All right, so he hasn't used his Lavamancer. He has one card left in his hand. It's going to end up having him come down to Lavamancing my Ink Moth Nexus. So he waits for a second. The Spell Pierce and the Force of Will resolve. The Invigorate's still on the stack, and he cracks the fetch land. All right? So he picks up his library, and most people... Most people, when you pick up your library and you go to get a dual land out, you search from the bottom because you pick it up and the bottom are the cards that are facing you. But my opponent picked up his library and started flipping from the top. Now, when this was happening in the game, I didn't think anything of it. But he starts flipping through his library from the top. He gets his land out. He shuffles. And I will tell you what I think happened after. And he puts his deck down. And he pauses another bit. And since my hand, I know exactly what's going to happen, I forget to cut his deck again. So he activates Lavamancer, one card left in hand, one more fetch land, one mana untapped. And in response to the Lavamancer activation, I cast Become Immense. Tap out, exile the cards. My hand's empty. There's ten damage worth of pump spells on the stack. All the cards in his hand are gone but one. So I'm thinking, all right, what can this last card be? Because I think that I have this. And my opponent waits for like, I don't know, a good 15 seconds. Now he's got one mana untapped. He's got an untapped fetch land. And I'm trying to think about what the last card could be. And finally, he casts a Thought Scour targeting himself. And I say, okay. He mills another dual land, a ponder... And then the daze, which he dazes my spell, game over. Now, I didn't realize until after the thought the thought scour had resolved that I hadn't cut the deck again. And when he didn't present it to me the first time, I made kind of a stink about it. I was like, will you please present your deck to me next time you crack a fetch land? And when he drew the daze, I realized I didn't cut his deck. And I said, you know, you didn't present your deck again. And that was kind of bullshit. Now, looking back on the reason that I thought my opponent was a savage cheater was in that situation, you have another fetch land and you know you have another dual land in your deck. This player had done well in the past, so I know that they're not an idiot playing magic, and I would think that my opponent, knowing that I was empty-handed, that they had four outs to hit, one spell pierce and three more days that they would thin their deck of their last dual land, or second-to-last dual land, but they didn't. Also, my opponent searched from their fetch land from the top down, so they knew what the top cards of their library were, and I believe my opponent searched from the top down because they knew their last card was Thought Scour, and they wanted to see what the third card was. So the pause that my opponent was taking 
was checking to see whether or not I was going to get up, reach across the table, and cut his deck, because then they would have shuffled with their second fetch land. So what I believe my opponent did was search from the top down, stack a daze, or see that the daze was the third card down in the library, and shuffle sideways so the top of their deck didn't change. Like, pick up the deck, split it, and then side shuffle through the bottom repeatedly, not alternating through the top and the bottom like most people would do. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't pay close enough attention, so that part is speculation, but I 100% believe that everything my opponent did, they did with the knowledge that their out was third because it doesn't make sense for them to do it otherwise. We go to game two, and I'm visibly upset. I mulligan to five and keep a no-lander. I say pass, and then my opponent cracks a fetch land on his turn one, gets his land, and then <laughs> gets up from the seat to pass his library across and plop it in the middle of my play mat for me to shuffle. And that just sort of set me off even more. So game two ends, and I know that I'm being salty. I know that I'm being salty. So at this point, I hadn't put all of those small actions together that my opponent just savaged me. It hadn't sort of processed every pause and every action that my opponent took could potentially have led them to do what I think they did. So I said, listen, I I want to apologize for being so salty to you. But I just want you to understand that from an outside observer, everything that happened in that situation would lead them to believe that you cheated. If that was on Twitch, there would already be a Reddit post about what happened. And he looks me in the eye with this, like, sort of shitty look and just says, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Not, like, in an apologetic way, like, total shithead statement so at that point i just pick up all of my shit don't shake hands walk away from the table and i'm just visibly steaming like i leave my teammates sitting there just because i needed to get away and i played magic for a long time and i have never been as upset as when that happened and look i 100 percent should have called a judge twice But I was so angry at the moment that I just, I didn't. I wasn't thinking correctly. I think that every action that was taken in that game leads me to believe that my opponent savagely cheated. Yeah, I mean, it certainly sounds like it. I wasn't there. This is the first time I'm hearing about it. But it does sound shady. And I guess to to add, I guess, to this, like, I played against, I don't know if you recall, Trevor Humphreys back in, like, 2015 or so, like, Theros era. When he won. Was, was, was he the person that won Worcester and called yeah. everybody a bunch of keyboard dojo? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, th- I think yeah. it, it might have been Providence, actually, but it was like, uh, it was like a, a Star City, like, two open weekend or whatever. Yep. And I played, I was like maybe uh, 5-0 or 5-1, and I played against him and ended up keeping a four land, uh, sorry, four card hand with no lands in it in game three. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you know, it came out the following week that he'd been, like, shuffle-cheating everyone. So, I was playing in round nine of a Grand Prix against Jared Betcher, and the same thing happened. Game one, 
mull to five, no land, game two, mull the, or game three, after I won game two, game three, mull the four, no land. And that was two weeks before he got caught and banned. But So what did you think at the time? At the time, I, the reason why I didn't call a judge was I was mad at myself that I didn't cut his deck. Looking back on it, he had set up his library in a position that was hard to access, and he made like a little barrier with his deck box. And if that wasn't on purpose, it definitely contributed to the situation. In addition, every single person that responded to the poll that I put up in Leaving a Legacy, 180-something people, said that when they crack a fetch land, they present their deck. They put it on the front of their playmat. They put it in the area between. But nobody would put their library on the back left-hand corner of their playmat where it was before after cracking a fetch land. So 185 people said they do that. And yeah. I guess I guess because of the nature of the podcast format, I'm kind of have to play devil's advocate inside with the zero people here. So maybe this player like, you know, did wasn't used to playing paper magic or something, you know, is that a possibility? No, this this is a person who has some published some published finishes and has done has done well at Star City events in the past. So this okay. is definitely not somebody who was new to playing Paper Magic. Gotcha. Or was was intimidated or unsure of what to do because they were a new player. That takes some serious stones. It uh, it just rubbed me the wrong way. And looking back on it, for him to side shuffle and leave the top of his deck the way that it was knowing that he had searched from the top down and that he didn't crack his last fetch land to get the last or second to last dual land out of his deck that he had seen less than a minute earlier from cracking his other fetch land leads me to believe that he knew what the third card of his deck was. And the long pause was to see whether or not I was going to cut his deck or distract from the fact that I hadn't done it yet. And I wish that I'd called the judge the first time. I wish that I had called the judge the second time. But I was so angry in the moment that I just stormed off. And I regret what I could have done to prevent it. But that still doesn't change the fact that I believe my opponent was a scumbag. Yeah, so I, I guess that loss maybe knocks your team out of contention then? No, so I, I did those out of order. The, um, oh, right, right, right. The the loss that actually knocked my team out of contention and put us in the beer bracket was a match that I won. So in in round eight, I was playing the Miracles matchup, and I won a super tight game three where I had an early Sylvan library, but my opponent had a counterbalance and a flipped search. And his comment to his teammates after the match was, I had perfects, but I still lost. Like, I was able to navigate through everything that he had, even making a slight mistake in the beginning where he had blind blind flashed in a Snapcaster Mage as an Ambush Viper, and I should have played my pump spell with the Snapcaster Mage on the stack if I had timed my pump spell before the Snapcaster Mage resolves. Mm-hmm. So I, I basically lost to a Flusterstorm that I could have not lost to, because I played my pump spell, Flusterstorm happens, now he's tapped out, and I can daze the Snapcaster Mage. And then my guy still lives. Yeah. But this is a super grindy game three. Max is almost gone to time. We finish it up. I win. 
both of my teammates are sitting next to me and I'm like super happy because we're still in contention. Like I just won and we won for, we won the match. Right. So we're walking away and I was like, who brought the slip up? And my teammates were like, dude, we lost. And I was like, wait, you guys lost before I even finished. They're like, yeah, you guys look like you were having a good game. So we just let you play it out. So I was like, <laughs> Oh man, like, I don't even want to play this round nine. Now we're, now we're dead as a team. And I just want to go get another beer. So that's that's what happened. I thought that I had I had done a good thing, and uh, we were moving on. But my teammates informed me that was incorrect. That's brutal. Yeah. So I knew that Grixis was going to be a tough matchup, and regardless of all the shenanigans that happened, that was going to be a very tough matchup to fight through. So I lost to Grixis twice, and I lost to Blood Moon Stompy, and those were matchups going in that I. I knew that Infect did not have a good matchup against. The rest of the field I felt good about, though. So I know I played against an overly represented number of Grixis decks, but I still think Infect was well-positioned. It definitely was not the best deck. I need to reevaluate what I'm playing for next week in Philly. So if you had to give Infect a grade, what would it be? A B, B minus. Okay. There were... So if if we sort of evaluate all of my matches and where they should have gone, I think that I was probably a favorite in the Grixis Tezzeret matchup, and the Grixis Delver and Blood Moon matchups were were negative, and if I play the same matchups that I played, and I get one more, then I'm 7-2, and two and I'm happy with the performance. I know that playing the deck matchup lottery isn't something that I really want to do, but online and in paper, I'm sitting around 65%, and that's not a terrible place to be. So I know that there is a deck that is going to be better positioned. I don't know what it is yet. But if I had to play tomorrow, I would play Infect again. Really? Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Now, how'd the tournament go for you? So I also played Infect on Saturday. And my teammates were, well, one teammate specifically, really wanted me to play Rug Delver. And... I felt like Rug Delver really was not well positioned for a team tournament, as we kind of discussed last week. I felt like Infect was basically the same, but you had better matchups against Chalice decks, basically. So I stuck with it, played Infect, and honestly, I played against only one blue deck before our team dropped in round seven. And they really weren't great matchups looking back at it. So I played DNT, Maverick, Lands, Eldrazi, Rug Delver, and can't remember the other deck, but basically my build was a little different than yours. I didn't have a basic island. I didn't have a Viridian Corruptor in my sideboard. I was very geared to beating the combo matchups, Reanimator and Show and Tell. I had two containment priests in my sideboard. And I didn't play against any show and tell. I didn't play against any elves. The matchups I was really looking for, those two and Blue Black Reanimator, uh, I didn't see any of that. So, yeah, it wasn't great. And there was a there was a tough match at the beginning against Death and Taxes, where in game three I had the option to go for a turn three win, but not be able to play around a single Sword Supply Shares or Path to Exile. So I consulted my teammates at that time, and I think I was the last match. And their opinion was the same as mine, that I should wait a turn when I would have a Hexproof spell and a Spell Pierce back as defense. So we chose that line, 
and my opponent, out of nowhere, uh, I hadn't seen a fetch land, I hadn't seen a plateau, I hadn't seen even a cavern of souls all match. Vile's in a magus of the moon and just ruins my day. So that was a tough loss. There was a game three against lands where I had three turns and two ponders to try to find a hexproof spell or a pithing needle, or I guess a crop rotation, to get out of like a maze situation and wasn't able to find that. So overall, you know, I feel like I, I could have mulliganed more aggressively probably in some of these mashups. You know, I, I wasn't playing the deck to the best of its potential, but I, I would give it like a C, honestly. I felt like Infect was a good place to be, but not a great place to be. And I, I definitely could have played it better. I think looking at how we constructed our sideboards, because my sideboard was very similar to yours. I think we were two cards yeah. off where I played a single rest in peace over your second containment yeah. priest and i played the viridian corruptor over your i honestly don't know what uh what what we had different I think in that I had matchup a second druid deliverance did you not have that okay i know i only had one so that's yeah. what that was i didn't see reanimator all day not in the tables around me not walking around not playing against it and i think that reanim- reanimator pilots were really just scared about the sideboard hate that people were going to bring and it just didn't show up. And we didn't see any in the team tournament. I believe that there was one in the classic. But Reanimator didn't didn't have a great performance over the weekend. Yeah, it's possible. I did see it in the challenge though, for what it's worth. Yeah, there was there was one in the challenge. I believe there was one in the in the classic as well. Oh, I keep saying challenge, I'm sorry. In the classic, yep. So yeah, you want to move to the classic then? You weren't able to play in the classic. Yeah, so I I, pro- I would have been able to, but with the way... I had a kid a little bit more than a year ago, and I used to play a ton of Magic. Enough Planeswalker points for two buys all the time, traveling a few times a month, just to the bigger events that I could be able to get to, and, and having a blast with it. When my son was born, I just can't get away as much as I used to. I stopped playing Magic for like five or six months and maybe went to one or two local events, didn't travel. And as he started to get older, uh, I worked out a deal where I'm able to sort of bookend two weekend days away to play magic. And I can save them. If I want to do two weekends in a month, I can skip a month, but that's a situation that my wife and I worked out, which works out really well for me. So for me to play in the classic on Sunday would have caused me to miss a grand prix later on in the year and even though legacy is great playing in one of the classics isn't something that i'm i'm willing to sort of invest a day in i really love large multiple day events usually i can leverage making the second day and playing against some pretty good competition so i I probably could have gone but I skipped it to make sure that I could go to a Grand Prix later in the year. Yeah, and that makes sense. So I was able to go back on Sunday for the Classic, and we talked on Saturday night about which deck I should play because I had you know a few ideas kicking around. And there were basically two extremes. There was the deck that we used to play with four Deathrite Shamans and just re- straight up replacing those with four Birds of Paradise. That was something that you had mentioned earlier that had sort of struck my fancy and I kind of wanted to try out. And then there was the other extreme, which was a total Bant Maverick deck, which had all the Force of Wills in the sideboard, actually. It was too low on blue cards. It was like uh, Dazes, Brainstorms, and True Names, and like uh, Leovold in the main. 
and all other blue cards in the sideboard. You know, basically just all in green sun, fair deck style. And I was sort of, I was kicking them back and forth, weighing my options. And Sunday comes, Sunday morning comes. I talked to you, I talked to Wilson, I talked to a few different people about this deck. And then Sunday morning comes, I wake up an hour late, fly to Worcester. It's 9.35 when I walk in, and thankfully Blake and our friend uh, Ben Bardaka were there to help me sort of put my deck together. And I wound up with like an amalgamation of cards that were in front of me that were sort of halfway between the two decks. So I ended up playing a build with two Green Sun Zeniths and one Birds of Paradise, a slight black splash for one Leovolt, off just one underground sea and i guess off the birds of paradise technically i could get it with the green sun if i wanted to and honestly the deck felt great my wins were against tier one decks like miracles rug delver in fact if you want to call that a tier one deck and reanimator and my losses were to dredge and merfolk and the Merfolk loss was actually a pretty tough one because it came down to a top deck Lord. I also punted a match against like a red Stompy, like an eight moon Stompy deck. It was the most ridiculous game three that I can ever recall playing against that deck. At the end of the game, I had 10 cards left in the library and he had yet to stick a Blood Moon. So you can just tell how weird this game was just by that. I, I can't imagine. Yeah, it was it was so strange. He led with a, a spyglass, turning off my sword. So so my keep was like the ideal keep. It was three lands, hierarch, true name, sword. So what you think there, playing like you know our style of deck, is you get under the chalice with the hierarch, then you get under the blood moon with the true name, and then you just wreck him with the sword. And all you have to worry about is the snaring bridge. And I had a daze for that too. So I had like the ideal hand. And he leads off, I lead off Hierarch, he leads off Spyglass, turns off my sword. I stick a true name. He plays Chromox Ancient Tomb Bridge, so I can't actually daze it. So he's got a bridge down now. And he's down to two cards in hand. So I end up hitting him with the Hierarch for a few turns before he can fire Confluence. And then we're just like draw go for the longest time. I green sun up because he's at zero cards in hand, and at this point he has three bridges. So I green sun up a Birds of Paradise, and at some point I had equipped the Jit on the Hierarch, and it had one counter on it. So with that one counter Birds of Paradise, I end up start chipping away at him again. And he casts a Magus of the Moon, and I have a Sword to Plowshares. So I'm thinking, do I want to plow this Magus? And at the time, he was at 13 life. Or I'm sorry, he was at 11 life. And the birds are hitting for four each turn with the Jit on him. So I think to myself, actually, you know, I I just really didn't think about it. I I plowed the Magus uh, so he couldn't cut me off of all my colors of mana. And the game ended with him at one life. So that was the difference in the game right there. If I had just not plowed the Magus, I would have had the win there and would have been playing for a top 16. So, yeah, it was unfortunate. It was totally on me. But that's what you get. I feel like my build of the deck wasn't ideal. Actually, at one point when I was 3-0, and I was joking with people that I really did hope that I didn't top 8 and have my list published because I didn't want to have to defend it because it really had some questionable slots in there. Trade, trade binder deck. Exactly. And my sideboard was 
certainly not optimal. But I was really encouraged by the deck's performance, honestly. It, it felt really good. It felt like it was in a sweet spot. But, uh, yeah, that's that, you know, that's where we are. And I wish, honestly, I wish that there were five of these tournaments coming up because there's so many things I want to try right now. I was telling uh, our friend Brent, actually, who complimented the podcast, said he was a listener, which is awesome. I got a ton of great feedback from people about how much they've enjoyed the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, it's pretty sweet, right? Yeah, so much. I was telling Brent that if I had any balls at all, I would have played Dead Guy because I felt like it was well-positioned. Just not registering Brainstorm and Force of Will, maybe I just have to look in the mirror and just say, you need to do this. I think right now you can go and attack the decks in the meta on a different axis. You might not be registering Brainstorm and Force of Will, but if you're registering Thoughtseize and Inquisition along with Freebooter and Aether Vial, that might be that might be enough to keep the combo decks in check. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I I can't honestly I can't think back to the last time I didn't register those cards. So maybe it's just this like barrier I need to cross, right? But anyway, I guess if you want to move on to the results of the classic, we can look at the results of the team open, but that's always kind of weird, right? Because like you don't know who was playing with who, and some legacy player might have gone like one five in day two and just got carried. You know, you never really know. So I'd prefer to start with the classic. That's true. Well, to me, and maybe this is just me, when you take a look at the classic data, maybe not especially at the team event. But if there was a Legacy Open and then a Legacy Classic, the Classic is really like the B-Leagues, where when you look at the competition in the main event day two compared to the Classic, there's a lot more things that can perform well in the Classic. I would agree. Does that yeah, make sense? No, I would agree with you. I, I guess maybe we shouldn't get bogged down then in the specific finishes of, like, you know oh, Rug, you know, was at the bottom half of day two of the team open versus uh, Sneak and Show had better performances. Yeah, I, I could agree with that. Okay, so yeah, with the team open, obviously congrats to Brian Cook. He's on a fucking incredible heater. Somebody take his hat. Take his hat. Bro, the fucking Mets, too, of all the teams, right? To wear a Mets hat. He's just he's an evil person. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, yeah, congrats. So we had Brian, obviously, I think as the sole representative of the Storm archetype in day two. Is that correct? I know that they published the metagame data for day two. I am not sure whether or not he was the only Storm deck. It seems plausible because there are only 30-something teams that made day two. 25, I think. 25, okay. Yeah, so, so, so it, basically... It's probably right he was he ha We have four or five Rug Delvers, a pair of Grixis Delvers, a pair of Miracles, three Death and Taxes, three Sneak and Show, it looks like. Did you um? Did you actually watch the stream of the finals? Not even for one second. So I ended up tuning in after my, after my son went to sleep just to see the finals match. And they showed the standard full match that ended really quickly. And then they showed the Storm Rug Delver Game 3, where Bryant ended up making four goblins uh, after his opponent kept a hand after a mulligan with no colored mana source and didn't hit for a while. 
And it seemed like his opponent was going to be able to turn the corner and stabilize by bolting one of the tokens and keeping back two of his flip delvers to block. But on his opponent's last turn, he swung with both of his delvers and then conceded. When if the life totals that were on the stream were correct, uh, he could have not only lived, but completely stabilized. Uh, so that was strange. I didn't read anything about anything that happened with it. But you were talking about how we can't really derive a ton of data from team events because we don't know the individual records. But that's that's something strange to happen in the finals that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, that sounds pretty bad. It seems like, you know, there's a lot of times when the life totals aren't correct on streams. Hopefully, hopefully it was one of those situations. It could have been a long day for player B, or it could have been just, you know, some sloppy play. Yep. So anyway, yeah, we see a lot of the decks that we expected to see, though, honestly. We see Rug Delver, we see uh, Seek and Show, Death and Taxes, a couple lands decks. One thing that kind of surprised me, we saw a blue-white-red Delver and a blue-white Stoneblade, and that sort of carries over to the Classic as well. I think the story of the weekend was resilient mana bases. If you look at the decks that performed well, they were ones that were either Stifled Delver or decks that had Stifled Delver in mind with enough basics. Blue-white Stoneblade getting into the mid-places in the team open and finishing second in the Classic just shows how important having basic land fetchable mana bases is i i wouldn't have done as well with infect if i didn't have both of the basics in my deck and if i could go back i might even change it to having two basic forests and one basic island rather than the two that i played yeah interesting and the infect player that i played in round one of the classic actually also had a basic island and echoes similar sentiments to what you're saying so shout out to Joey Santamassino. He's um, one of my old playtest group players. He top-aided Grand Prix New Jersey with Metalworker, and he always plays a sort of mono-artifact chalice build. But he won the Classic with, with Eldrazi Post that he's been on. That's a very interesting way to attack this metagame as well. Going back to a couple weeks ago, looking at, you know, after the bans, our initial thought was, okay, does Legacy just go back to 2013 again, right? And it seems fitting to me, I guess, that uh, Jeremy Tibbetts was the one seed going to the top eight of this event. He's been quietly putting up finishes lately, like with the TJ's event that we had last year, he won top 16, the Legacy, the last Legacy SCG in Worcester. And his decks, to me, always look like a throwback to like a long-gone era. I don't know if you're following in the Blade Facebook group, but he posts decks quite a bit. And they're very, they're hyper efficient. They look tailored to beat Delver and Combo. And I think he relies on, you know, sort of skill and experience to, to beat like the more mid range matchups that you face. But if we're going back to 2013, it seems totally fitting to me that he would come in second in this event. Yeah, congratulations to him. Blue White definitely has pulled itself ahead of the other Blade decks. Again, probably because of its resilient mana base. I think Gerard Fabiano played Blue-White Blade in the team event. He um, did some videos for Channel Fireball, I think it was, streaming Blue-White Blade leading up to the event. It's a good place to be. Stoneforge Mystic was one of the winners in the ban. 
we didn't see a lot of coal, the a lot of K command running around. And Stoneforge Mystic, while it is slow, it's in the colors you want to be to fight combo. Also, you have access to Swords to Plowshares, which is the best removal spell in Legacy right now. Especially if the budget deck of choice from now on is going to be the Grixis Death Shadow deck that had two finishes in the Classic. Did you see this Bro, list? I feel like that's just disrespectful to call the budget choice. But but it is I'm, right. It's it's the cheap it's the cheapest deck in Legacy. There's one Underground Sea and four Force of Will, and everything else is cheap. Did they not play like a Volcanic Island or whatever? I believe everything else was just Shocklands. Really? Let me let me double check. I mean, it doesn't really matter. I, but I, what I'm saying though, like we talked about this last week, and I felt the blue black Delver shell right now because I'm not as high as on Bomat Courier as other people seem to be. I think the blue black, the best shell for blue black might just be Death Shadow at this point. And like, if I were to build Death Shadow, I have access to as many underground seas as I could fucking dream of. But I'm still gonna play two watery graves, you know. Like, it's not like that's a concession to budget. I think it's it's just the right choice, right? Yeah, but when you take a look at a death a deck like Death Shadow, how many matchups do you actually care about your life total in this metagame right now? Show and tell. No nope. miracles? No nope. death and taxes? Kind of? Everything else? No, I mean, not no, really. Delver matchups, you care. Okay, okay. The Delver matchups end up turning into one of these modern ish burn first Death Shadow matchups. True. Where there are a lot of times where the opposing Delver player, it could be correct not to swing with the Delver even if your Death Shadow opponent just doesn't have a board, where you kind of want to like build up your board to be able to Alpha Strike and Bolt to stop your opponent from just taking hits down to six or seven and playing multiple Death Shadows. And a deck like Rug Delver has a hard time developing their board out like that because they're only playing 12 threats. And the Grixis Death Shadow deck has access to Thoughtseize and all of the same tempo spells that rug has I, I think it really comes down to right now would you rather have death shadow or nimble mongoose yeah and i mean i would rather have death shadow like I, green adds almost nothing right like i i was defending my choice of infect arguing against rug delver a lot on saturday and you know what does green really add what like nimble mongoose and tarmogoyf sure flash flashback ancient grudge out of the side true board. which is not irrelevant certainly not irrelevant that's really not a lot right Compared to what Black adds, compared to the power of Thoughtseize and Gurmag Angler. Yeah, Thoughtseize, Thoughtseize is in a really good position right now. And Edicts in the board, like all the sideboard cards that Black has access to, you know, whether you want to run, so even the crazy stuff like the Dread of Knights, you know. Or Kess, Dissident Mage, and Nicol Bolas, the Ravager. I don't even know what you're talking about. The top eight Grixis Shadow List. <laughs> is this serious? 100 percent it has a new nickel ball on the sideboard no no <laughs> the sideboard sideboard has two four drops in a deck that has 18 lands and five of those lands are shock lands that's fucking stunting on us holy shit i did not click into get that those one. get street wraith completely replaces getaxian pro boys <laughs> holy swap shit. them right I'm looking in at it now that's 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 hilarious, dude. I mean, it's a really streamlined list, right? Yeah. yeah. And if you're if you're expecting to fight through a field of show and tell, this deck can do it. 
Yeah, I like this deck a lot, and I'm, I'm kind of surprised to see zero Tombstalkers, honestly, uh, just because I thought that, that was the way that this deck was going to go. And wow, zero Thought Scours as well, just looking at this 8th place list. So it's a little different than I thought, but this looks, yeah, hyper hyper streamlined, very good against combo, and probably wins Delver Mirrors. Now, in 15th place, Jeremy Tibbetts' brother has another Grixis Shadow list. Dude, is that, is that, that his is very twin similar. brother? He looks so much like him. He might be his twin brother. I just know that it's his brother from, from the Stoneblade Facebook group. Okay. But the lists are very similar, but it runs the Red Berserk Battle Rage in Legacy. One of, yeah. Just as a one of. But that's all you need. Just make your angler hit for 10. That's all He's you got need. a Dismember in here and two Stubborn Denials, which is... I think the modern deck used to use that, right? Yeah, it's it's basically a one man and a gate when you have a Death Shadow in play or an Angler, which which happens quite a bit with these turbo fill your graveyard builds. I like the sideboard construction of this deck a lot better too. I can't reasonably see the the top eight build casting those four drops for value in Legacy. I think that Joe's sideboard construction is much more tuned for what I would bring to a tournament. But again, you see you see this mana base, there's no Volcanic Island, there's one Underground yep. Sea. The only money cards that are in the deck are Force of Will, Underground Sea, and the Fetchlands. And you can tell this is Jeremy's brother, right? Because this is like a hyper-efficient sideboard. All these choices, I totally agree with them. I co-signed this 100%, like you were saying. Nothing cute at all. This is straight business. And a Colgon's Command, too. Look at that. Yep, we see, we see an appearance. So what else did you sort of pull out of the weekend? I got that Infect was medium to medium plus. You gave it a C, I gave it a B, B minus. Wasn't where each of us would think it's it's the deck that you would want to go into. We saw decks with resilient mana bases. We saw the return of goblins. We didn't see much reanimator except for one that top aided the classic. We saw lots of different versions of Delver, and the ones that I liked the most were Grixis-based, whether they were the Death Shadow or the team open lists from Noah and somebody else that I can't remember. Yeah, so I guess uh, as a little segment, I was going to do things we were right about and things we were wrong about leading up to this weekend. The first thing I think that we were right about is Eldrazi being a better deck than it was before the ban. I don't think we saw any Eldrazi in the team open. I could be wrong. It did win the Classic. Now, okay, that's not Eldrazi. It's not Eldrazi. So, in my opinion, it's not Eldrazi. When we were talking about Eldrazi before, I thought that we were talking about the Eldrazi Mimic aggro build. This is this is Metalwork without Metalwork, right? True. It's playing Cloudpost. It's playing Vesuva. It's playing the the old mud mana base, just replacing some of the clunky stuff with Eldrazi instead. So I don't know if that list winning shows that Eldrazi is better in the meta, but maybe maybe online results do. Like I know that Lewis CBR is switched to Eldrazi. He believes that's really well positioned. It's done well in showing up in some of the 5-0 lists that have been published. I wouldn't necessarily say that Santa Messino's deck is Eldrazi. No, you're right about that. I was being a little flippant with the term Eldrazi, I guess. When I think of Eldrazi, actually, this is the deck that I'm more scared of, is the Santa Messino build playing Stoneforge Mystic, like I typically am. 
This is the deck that gives me fits. They can go way over the top really quick. And the aggro Stompy Eldrazi build, days are excellent against. And when your opponent's making 14 mana from their posts, you really need to time your dazes correctly to get value from them. You're playing things like Grim Monolith, and you have early plays like Trinisphere along with Chalice that are much that are just like must answers. And I haven't seen a card like Trinisphere in an Eldrazi Stompy build. Yeah, that's true. So another thing that I guess we were sort of right about is the reemergence of Death Shadow, which we've already discussed. And I totally agree that it's probably the the blue black delver deck now in the absence of something else i know the brainstorm show mentioned like this heavy bitter blossom build that we discussed a little bit yeah that that seems like for now you know it's it's the blue black shell i would i would agree with you i'd also agree that that gives more stock to the chalice based decks and if we look at the winning deck of the classic and quite a few decks in the team open chalice was a major part of their game for sure and the other thing that we were right about, and I, I guess you know everyone was kind of right about this, we all saw the writing on the wall, is Sneak and Show, right? Sneak and Show was high placer in the hands of Bob Wong and the team open. It did well last week in the uh, MTGO Legacy Challenge. And it was just a boogeyman. It was all around. Shout out to uh, Oren Shoemaker, formerly famous as the harshest card grader at Gaming Etc. of the Buyers for his top 16 finish in the Legacy Classic, Piling Sneak and Show. It's a force. And Arcane Artisan, much to the chagrin of some, is... A real card. Yeah, let's get to the things that we were wrong about. <laughs> yeah, so... Jerry? <laughs> Jerry? You were right, buddy. I personally was very wrong about Arcane Arson being a card. When I originally evaluated it, I was looking at it from a main deck perspective, and having it main deck just turns on so much interaction from your opponent's removal that it's not worth having in the main deck. And my thought at the time was that it wasn't worth the sideboard spots that it would take up to bring it in from the sideboard. But I have to say from everybody who I've talked to who has played it, it is an excellent sideboard choice. And Jerry was right. It hurts me to say that. It really does, but he he was right. Yeah, I'm going to toot my own horn for a second because I actually jumped in to defend him on the initial Leaving a Legacy thread because it just lines up well, man. It just seems like a great post-board card. From our seat, from the you know the Stoneblade seat, bringing a Containment Priest, thinking that you're all good to go with your Canonist and your Priests, that card just messes you up. Going forward... Now that people are aware that that is the sideboard plan, you have to sort of rework your sideboarding patterns to make sure that you might have an extra answer yeah, or two. Yeah, but dude, that's all Whether equity. Whether it means leaving in... That's all equity. If they have to leave in you know, shit removal spells against you and you can mind game with them, that's not a negative. No, I, I'm just saying that moving forward, it doesn't end up being as strong of a sideboard card if your opponents know about it and you can play those mind games where you don't even bring it in and they have a bolt in their deck which which is fine but then again you're using sideboard spots on a card that you aren't bringing in for a matchup that you would have generally brought it in for or i'm not saying it's bad i'm saying it gets worse than this i don't know man what if you just don't put it in your sideboard and everybody has to leave in removal spells and you just sort of ride along on the coattails of this finish well i think what is going to happen as we move forward is that's the reason why cards like Thoughtseize end up becoming way better. Agreed. Where discard spells fill the same role that Probe used to about playing with perfect information, and 
they allow you to proactively strip threats from your opponent. So you don't have to guess about whether or not your needle should name Sneak Attack or Artisan. You don't have to worry about whether or not you should brainstorm away your Lightning Bolt. You know what you're set up for. And that's actually one of the reasons why I like the Grixis Shadow decks so much. Yeah. Yeah, and like being able to leave Edict. Edict is a better leave-in than Bolt against that deck, you know? Yeah, but neither of these Shadowless had Edict in the sideboard. Interesting. Yeah, you're right. I didn't I didn't actually think of that, but you're absolutely right. The top eight deck list sort of used him to Torak in that spot. There were four hymns in the sideboard to bring into those matchups. And the one that finished outside of top eight just had more of a spread of mild improvements like uh, Liliana of the Last Hope and Painful Truths yep. and Bitter Blossom to be able to bring in in specific matchups. So another thing that I specifically was wrong about was Brightling. I know that it was in the Death and Taxes list, and it was in also, crazily enough, Jeremy Tibbetts' list that came in second in the classic Blue-White Stoneblade list. He told me that Brightling was amazing for him and won him one of his matchups in the Swiss. And I honestly just didn't respect the power level of that card. I was kind of convinced listening to you last week talk about you know the scenario where it's, it's effectively unkillable, right? But it seems like such a big mana sink. You know, Batter Skull can kind of be the same way. I kind of, I, I guess I underestimated it. Yeah, I mean, if if you're talking about comparing Brightling and Batter Skull, if you have five mana and you can cast your Batter Skull, you could have Brightling with two return activations. Exactly. So, batter, you need to get to eight mana to effectively protect your Batter Skull. And Brightling is just so much more of an efficient threat to do that. In the Stoneblade shell, the lifelink is actually a little bit more important than it would be for the Death and Taxes shell. Because in the matchups where last week I was describing the games where Brightling would shine, it was more against mid-range-ish control decks where your life total wouldn't be pressured. But in the Stoneblade shell, there are a lot of games where you are not the aggressive deck where you are taking it early and you're using your equipment and creatures to stabilize. And in those situations, the Brightling lifelink and the Brightling vigilance are very important against decks like goblins or death shadow or Delver. The lifelink really shines. Yeah, I could believe that. So something that we were both wrong about now, Blue-White Stoneblade. I recall on a previous cast, we both sort of laughed at the idea of playing it in Worcester because Miracles was the better Blue-White deck. Well, I think that I had said that I wouldn't play Blue-White because I thought that Blue-White-Red was a better deck and the mana bases you could build to where they would each be stable enough against the field. Right. And I'm still not sure that's wrong. I haven't seen a lot of people playing blue-white-red online or in paper. I know Ms. Frost was playing blue-white-red online quite a bit, and I had a conversation with him about how he just hasn't had enough time to test a hammered-out list. But he was very happy with his basic land mana base, and being able to add, even if it's just Pyroblast, to a blue-white shell, in my opinion, is like very, very good for this meta. So you could take 
Jeremy's deck and tweak the mana base in such a way that there are almost the same number of basics, and you get to add Pyroblast out of the board. I don't know, man. So Topher also did play Blue, White, Red okay. at the Classic, and I actually I walked by another player who was playing Blue, White, Red at the Classic, and I don't know. So you have to play... Let's see, Jeremy had nine fetch lands in his list, two dual lands, and seven basics. I think the most basics you'd possibly be working with in a blue-white-red list would be five. I guess that's not that much more susceptible. The sideboard options that you get out of the board could potentially make up for it, and in my opinion would probably be better, even though I haven't tested straight blue-white, I've only tested blue-white-red. So your matchups where you care about Pyroblast are the combo matchups and the true name matchups, right? And against the true name matchups, what these blue-white decks get is more reliable access to Council's Judgment. And that also, that's also an answer to True Name. Yeah, it's Supreme Verdict is as yes, well. Yes, exactly. And those are the double white answers that I feel like you're forfeiting when you go to red. You're sort of sacrificing the, st- the stable double white for the stable white-red, right? Well, I think that you can, you can still reliably cast Council's Judgment. I'm not sure if you can run both Judgment and Verdict. I think Verdict is what ends up getting getting cut when you make the switch over. So looking at Jeremy's list, something like the two Supreme Verdicts and the Bane Slayer Angel probably wouldn't make the cut over. And you do open up your mana base a little bit toward Wasteland more the, the, because the you're probably Brightling. playing two more Volcanics. And the Brightling probably goes because you're not reliably going to have a lot of access to white mana to be able to activate its abilities. Yeah, exactly. But... Is the trade-off between Brightling and True Name Nemesis big? I would say no. Okay, so I think the blue-white-red deck can play more than one True Name Nemesis. Yeah, and honestly, if, if I were sleeping this up tomorrow, because of my blatant disrespect for Brightling, I would be running to True Name. But I, I do see where you're going, and I'm not positive. I'm not confident enough to say that blue-white is certainly better than blue-white-red at this point. But I think it's certainly better than Esper. All right, so then I guess what we were both right and wrong about would be the deck infect in general. I felt like it was C, C plus range. You felt like it was B, B minus range. You said that you would play it again, run it back. I think I'd, I I wouldn't be opposed to running it back, but I do feel like there are some better spots. Did you feel like your hands in the tournament when you saw them weren't explosive enough did you feel like it was your matchups, or do you feel like overall the deck was just too clunky in general, where you wanted to be on more of a streamlined plan? Yeah, I felt like Blood Moon and Chalice, which I saw pretty consistently, this deck just wasn't the most robust way to attack that. Okay, I would agree with that. And two of my losses were to Blood Moon and Chalice decks, so that sentiment is 100% correct. Yeah, and there is certainly a more resilient way to build Infect, but then you're giving up some equity in the combo matchups, which I just happen not to play against, right? But you need to prepare you need to prepare for all possible scenarios. Now, I really liked the combo matchup from Infect. Oh, of course, yeah. Playing a deck playing a deck that has main deck Flusterstorm and the ability to side into two more where you have access to so many soft counters and potentially such a quick clock that your opponent has to respect 
it felt very nice. And I played against more combo than you did. But I I understand that Delver is a tough matchup, and I feel like the field is going to be moving more toward Delver-based decks, just not Rug. Yeah, I agree. I expect to see a lot of people playing with blue-white-red shells, whether that's Delver or not. I expect a lot of people to be playing with Grixis, you know, whether that's Bomat Courier, whether they decide to go a different direction, like a Swift Spear direction. I expect to see a lot of that. Yeah, just more chalices, really. All right, so what what were your other thoughts about this week? I just wanted to thank everybody, you know. A lot of people came up to me, said they listened to the cast, which is pretty fucking weird. I told them that they were pretty weird for doing that. No, it was great, man. It was It was just, honestly, it was great. Everybody I played against in the Classic was just an awesome person. Yeah, much much love to all my opponents and my team. Um, sorry guys, uh, we just you know we didn't have it that day. It's still it's still a fun experience. I'd like to 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 echo your sentiments, except for one individual who I played. Everybody else was great. I had a great time playing Magic. My team is great, and even though our records weren't, we're going to get to run it back this weekend. And I think that if I was going to pick my deck for next weekend right now, it would be one of the Grixis Shadow builds, and then we'd see how it goes. Oh, sick. Wait, what? what is this weekend? Can you tell everybody? Oh, I'm going to be attending the Team SCG in Philly this coming weekend. So the the venue, if you haven't been to the Valley Forge Casino to play in a Star City, it's the best. This is the best magic venue that i've ever been to the event is on the first floor of a casino the main floor with gambling and food is on the second and then the hotel rooms and restaurants are on the third and above so you just go you check into your hotel room you ride the elevator to get a drink to get food down to the event if the event doesn't go your way you go play some games have some beers and it is a great magic weekend where once you check in, you don't have to worry about leaving because everything is right there. So do you typically turn your phone off or do you leave it in the room? What are we talking about? <laughs> when you get to the Valley Forge Casino. When my wife calls me and I don't pick up, I'm still in trouble. It's not a vacation <laughs> from reality. It's just it's just a great place to be. I'm out of control, man. I get to a casino and magic's the last thing on my mind. I tried to gamble, but all the tables were full the day after uh, the, day after the main event. But last time I went, I didn't gamble at all. And I am not the type of person to do that maybe go out and try to hit up one of the bars that's there but i think i'm gonna i'm gonna tighten up my magic budget and maybe try to see what the next arcane artisan brightling spec is gonna be so i can hit off that uh you want to wrap it up bro yeah uh, i'd like to thank everybody for listening and please i'm gonna make this uh this pitch follow us on soundcloud subscribe on itunes if you like the podcast give it a five-star rating if, if you are on twitter you can follow the cast at dead format cast you can follow me at t smiley mtg and you can follow ian at ian 18125 nailed it and if you want to email the cast it's dead format cast at gmail.com and i apologize if we're having any audio issues i had to record in my basement tonight because my wife is sick not like donate to our GoFundMe sick, just like regular sick. But uh, she has a bit of a cough, so I'm way the fuck in the basement. And I'm sorry if my audio is off. Well, it's perfect. You're recording from the basement. We are on SoundCloud. Mixtape comes out next week. Have a good night, everybody.
It's kind of like telling your dad that you rollerblade, right? <laughs> 